Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. On today's show on Times Radio, we did PMQ's Unpacked. If you want to listen back to that, you can do that on the Times Radio app. But we did a really interesting exercise in recreating those Downing Street press briefings with our own experts to see what exactly is going on. Now then... It has been four months since the lockdown began and a month since Downing Street stopped the daily press conferences. So how many days is that since the last press conference, Pretty? 300,034,974,000. Thank you, Pretty. That makes much more sense. It seems like the flapjack gate has thrown everyone off, uh, off this morning. Uh, so what is happening to the coronavirus data? What are the latest scientific and medical breakthroughs to give us hope? or possibly despair. Welcome to today's Times Radio mid-morning coronavirus press briefing. Next slide, please. 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 What we are going to do is recreate those number 10 briefings with our very own experts. In a moment, Tom Calver from the Times data team will talk us through Uh, his slides, having updated the data sets that the government used to give us. I've tweeted all of the charts, so I appreciate that graphs don't work terribly well on the radio, but if you want to look at the charts as we're discussing them, you can go to my uh, Twitter account, at Matt Chorley on Twitter. Uh, Then in a moment, I'll be joined by our very own Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. Yes, Chris Smythe, the Times Whitehall editor and former health editor, and Tom Whipple, the science editor, will both be here. Uh, we were going to have someone to be the chief nurse, but she was rude about me in the practice run, so she's obviously been banned in line with Downing Street policy. Uh, now, if there are any questions you've got about the data, the science, or the advice, anything that's been annoying you, anything you, you think might be a daft question, uh, there, is, there are no daft questions here on Times Radio. Uh, now's the time to get in touch. Tweet us at Times Radio or text us. Start the message with the word TIMES and Texas 8722, and we'll try to answer those uh, between now and half past 11. But let's start then with the slides. Tom Calver, good morning. Good morning. So then, do you want to talk us through the slides, kicking off with transport? Absolutely. So um, we'll start with this first slide, uh, which shows, uh, is Britain moving again? And uh, this slide often used to kick off the Downing Street uh, press conference to sort of show whether people are sticking to lockdown or not. And uh, if we move from sort of left to right in the chart, the first thing you notice is that there's a big sharp drop off at the end of March when the lockdown order came through. So rail use at one point went down to 5%, uh, cars to about 23%. Buses were about 11% of their their lowest points compared to usual. Uh, Now, fast forward three months, uh, and for some of us, things are pretty much back to normal. Um, Heavy goods vehicle drivers, for example, are moving about 100% of normal levels. Um, Cars are are driving about 80% of what they were on the roads. But what's really interesting with this is that people are still shunning public transport. Um, Bus use is just about a third of normal levels, while rail use is, uh, is, is still about 13%. So even as people start to return to work, uh, people still seem to be avoiding public transport. Um, perhaps it's the obligatory face mask, we don't know. Um, but the, probably the biggest change of the ball is cycling. Um, if, for those of you that have the chart in front of you, you can see that, that big sort of uh, uh, bluey-greeny line. Um, in May, uh, early May, cycling was up to nearly 400% of its pre-lockdown levels. Um, Obviously, that's tailed off a bit since and varies quite a lot with the weather. Um, But the data seems to suggest that the cycling revolution is uh, probably the biggest change that's that's happened out of this data so far. Uh, Next slide, please. Very good. Very good. In fact, can we go back to the first slide? I just wanted to ask you, because there's big spikes with the cycling. Uh, You know, one day it'll be about, you know, 300 percent normal levels and then it's like down to 
fifty uh, percent. Um, what is that? Is that just weather related? That on the sunny days people are out cycling more, and on less sunny days it, it drops again. It's a lot to do with the weather, to be honest. Um, I think the biggest spike was uh, one of the May bank holidays. Um, as you can imagine, you know, cycling much higher at the at the weekends and when people have uh, have more sort of leisure activity. Um, I guess you know the real tell will be in three months' time whether we still see cycling up to these kind of levels. Very good. You could you could do your next slide, please. Now, <laughs> next slide, please. So now we're going to look at coronavirus testing. Um, so yesterday there were 101,741 tests that were carried out. Um, but this is not as simple as it sounds. Uh, so this includes, first of all, about 43,000 Pillar 1 tests done by the NHS and Public Health England. Now these are the tests done in hospitals and in, uh, in Public Health England laboratories. Then you've got another 41,000 tests that are Pillar 2. So those are the ones done by commercial partners in private labs. Then it, you get about 7,700 antibody tests. Um, so these are the ones that tell you if you have antibodies in your bloodstream. So whether you've ever had coronavirus or, or ever had, uh, ha well, basically ever had the antibodies. So it, it wouldn't produce um, a potential case, but it would tell you if you, you have ever had them. Um, and then finally, we've got about 9,900 so-called surveillance tests done for research. Um, and these are the ones done by bodies like uh, universities and the Office for National Statistics uh, to try and sort of gauge uh, how prevalent COVID is in, in the environment and uh, uh, the, the ones that are kind of not your kind of mainstream testing. So that all comes under that 101,741 tests. Now, you'll remember uh, back on May the 1st, there was quite a lot of fanfare when uh, Matt Hancock announced that uh, they'd reached the target of 100,000 tests. But actually, because so many of those were mail-ordered test kits that never returned, the, um, the official data says that the actual number of tests on that day was just 83,000. Um, so the most tests ever done was on July the 18th, when about 177,000 took place. But the government still says that it has capacity for more than 337,000. Um, so roughly about double of the, uh, of, of the amount that they're actually doing. And uh, please don't ask me how many people were actually tested. Uh, neither myself nor the health secretary have the foggiest idea. While about 10 million tests have now been carried out, each person may well have been tested two, three, four times. So the truth is we just don't know that one. And in terms of, I suppose, the, 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 t the testing only tells us, you know, as you said, how many people have, have gone through the process of being testing. Um, what does that mean for, for cases? Yes, so uh, this brings me on nicely to the next slide. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so if we look at the number of COVID cases in the UK. Uh, yesterday, 445 people tested positive for coronavirus. Um, so that's a big drop from uh, the peak of about 6,200 at the start of May, which is obviously good news. Uh, this takes us to uh, 295,817 confirmed coronavirus cases in the UK. Um, though some experts do say that there may well have been way more cases in the early stages of the pandemic uh, that weren't tested. Um, and, and so in that case, we, we just don't know how many cases there actually were in the UK. Um, that aside, the, the seven-day rolling average has stayed largely flat at about 600 new cases a day for the past two weeks. This is despite the recent spikes in places like Leicester, uh, when at one point I think more than 90 new cases were being picked up a day, uh, which of course forced the city into local lockdown. But, um, but fortunately, places like Blackburn and Bradford too, where there are also sort of uh, brief spikes, uh, these are starting to return to normal levels. 
So even with a massive expansion in testing and and talk of sort of local spikes, those even those spikes are from pretty low levels. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so so good news so far that they've they've sort of been kept under. Um, um, what's quite interesting with this data though is uh, I mentioned that the the peak was uh, actually at the start of May. Um, all the other data from hospitals and so on, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, suggests that the, the peak for infections was probably more like late March, um, early April, just sort of at the start of lockdown. So increased testing may well have, have meant that, that, that the, the, the peak in, in cases was much later than it actually was. But um, that's what the data shows anyway. OK, let's move on to hospitals then. Great. So uh, next slide, please. Now we're going to look at how full up our hospitals are with COVID patients. Um, now, it's worth taking us back to the start of April again, uh, when the total number of people in hospital with COVID-19 was 19,872. Um, if you remember, that was also the day that the PM himself left hospital after having been in, in intensive care with the virus just uh, days earlier. Um, and to put that number, that 19,872, into context, Normally, the NHS has around about 100,000 beds, um, but it especially cleared 33,000 to make room for COVID patients at the end of March. So if we, if we take that sort of 20,000 uh, number of people who were actually uh, in, in uh, hospital with COVID, uh, we see that the, the health service never really got to more than two-thirds full. Obviously, pressure would have been much higher in certain areas than others, but... Um, but, but, but some of the sort of uh, anticipated uh, lock jams were, uh, uh, didn't end up um, transpiring. Now, of course, this total has, uh, has reduced drastically since then. Uh, on July 19th, there were just uh, 1,612 COVID patients in hospital, down from uh, about 2,000 the week before. So it's been falling every week. And uh, fortunately, there's an even steeper fall in the number of patients on mechanical ventilators um, from about 3,000 back in April the 12th uh, to just 129 on July the 20th. So good news in the hospital data. Uh, let's move on to the sort of the less good news then and the, the deaths and uh, across the UK and also in different parts of the UK. Yeah, so if we move on to... Oh, I think we've slightly lost Tom there. Um, he was going to move on to the, uh, the, the number of people who've sadly died uh, from coronavirus. Uh, an extra 110 deaths were actually reported yesterday, taking the total number on uh, the official uh, statistics in the UK to 45,422. Uh, that works out at about 670 deaths per million people. Now, if you imagine a typical football match-sized crowd of 30,000 people, that's around 20 will have died of coronavirus. Uh, looking at the death rate per population uh, tells us the parts of the UK that have been worst hit by the pandemic. Uh, London, for instance, had it first, peaking in early April, but it's since been overtaken by the North West, which has seen about 912 deaths per million people. The North East and West Midlands have also been badly hit. In fact, a single hospital in uh, trust in Birmingham has seen 958 deaths. Uh, Wales, Scotland and the south-west of England have had much milder death tolls. Northern Ireland had a death rate of about 294 per million people, or about 556 deaths in total, the lowest of any part of the UK. Uh, so that's talking you through the, uh, the stats on deaths there. Um, Tom, do you want to talk us through the international comparisons? Yes, so um, it, it, I, one, just more, one extra point on death. Um, of course, some people say that the 45,000 figure is um, higher than the real number, of course. Uh, last week, Matt Hancock called for a review um, it, because it, it, it was emerged that uh, people who were testing positive for COVID, perhaps back in, in April, 
um, who later recovered from the virus um, were found to, um, if they later died of, of perhaps something completely different, um, then uh, they were still counted as COVID deaths. So some people are suggesting that this figure is higher than it should be. On the other hand, other people think that it's uh, it's lower than it should be, uh, that figure of 45,000. And um, you, know, you may remember this concept of excess death that was briefly talked about. Um, and this is how many more deaths happened in the UK during the pandemic uh, compared with usual. And this number is about 60, 65,000 since the start of lockdown. Uh, and this includes people who may have died of COVID but, but didn't get tested, but also includes people who uh, died from secondary effects of the pandemic, like, for example, not going to hospital for life-saving operations. Um, and what's quite interesting when we look at excess deaths is that while in uh, hospitals and care homes uh, they have returned to below zero, uh, the number of excess deaths at home still remains uh, above average. Um, so some people think it's higher than 45,000. Others think it's, lo thinks it's, it's, uh, it's lower than that. Um, we're going to stick with the 45,000 figure for now. And we're going to talk about international comparisons. Uh, if we could have the next slide, please. So we all got very used to charts looking a bit like uh, this one uh, with uh, lots of lovely lines for the countries uh, showing how, uh, uh, how each country's death rate was growing. And um, then one day this slide disappeared from the Downing Street press conference uh, in early May. Um, and you can sort of see why if you look from left to right. Uh, we see at the start of the outbreak, uh, the UK was largely tracking uh, Italy, Spain, France, um, and to some extent Germany right at the beginning. Um, and then it has soon pulled away of those countries. Um, and currently the UK has the third highest death toll overall. Um, and that's behind Brazil, where there have been 80,000 deaths, and the US, where there's been uh, more than 140,000 deaths. Um, but when we adjust for population, we can also see just how badly the UK has been hit. Uh, now, in terms of deaths per million people, we are second in the world uh, behind Belgium. Um, and that's, that's only if you include places like San Marino and Andorra with, with a small population. But um, others will say that it's far too early to compare countries and that the only reliable measure is excess deaths after several months. So we may have to wait and see. But, um, you know, for now, the data does, does not look too promising. And uh, on a cheery note, that's, uh, that's my last slide. Well, thank you very much, there, Tom Calvert. Apologies for the uh, the technical uh, whoopsie halfway through that. But uh, thank you for talking us through the slides. Again, if you want to see those slides, you can see them on my uh, Twitter uh, account, at uh, Matt Chorley on Twitter, and you can look through all the slides that uh, Tom was talking about there. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So now we come to our very own Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. Uh, Chris Smythe, Whitehall editor, former health editor of The Times. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. And uh, Tom Whipple, our science editor. You're very much uh, Patrick Valance, chief scientific advisor uh, this morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, yes. Hello. Hello. Yes, pay attention at the back, if you could. That would be lovely. Um, so uh, uh, let's start with um, one of, the, one of the, the key questions, which is always in my mind. Every time there's been a big event, whether it was a, a Black Lives Matter protest or, um, you know, anti-Black uh, you know, um, Lives Matter protests or uh, large gatherings or the pubs reopening or people doing the Congo, whatever it might be, people have rushed out and said, just you wait for the second spike. And so far, at least, that doesn't seem to be happening. What's going on there, Tom? I think what we're learning is that it doesn't spread very well outside. Um, you know, th there could be lots of explanations. We could have this hidden immunity that people like to talk about. Actually, it's all a fuss about nothing. We're locked down. We've reached herd immunity and it's fine. I think more plausibly is that things like Black Lives Matter, things like people going to the beach, were quite a useful, uh, unprompted experiment into how this thing spreads. And we're finding it doesn't spread there. Whereas conversely... We are seeing that it spreads quite well or extremely well in meatpacking facilities and indeed this week, ironically, in test and trace call centres. Do we know why? I mean, in particular, the meatpack, is it because it's colder? Because there was a story in the paper today about how uh, the, 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 as the temperature rose in the summer, that seemed to have a direct impact on the spread of the virus, which obviously doesn't bode very well for, for the coming winter. Yeah, so um, there's lots of theories about meatpacking. Um, there's a mixture of environmental and, and social factors. So to run you through them, yes, the coldness. There does seem to be... We're completely used to the idea that coronaviruses that aren't this one are seasonal, which is why, actually, when you talk to the, the real Patrick Valance... Um, but I'm very pleased I'm Patrick Valance rather than Chris Whitty. I think Patrick Valance always seemed like the glamour of the two. Um, <laughs> but when you talk to him, their real concern is that th what we're looking at is things happening in winter, that, that summer is a respite for us where we can plan and regroup before we start closing windows, things that get colder and it starts spreading again. But yes, to, so meatpacking facilities, there is the temperature, which may be a factor. There's the fact that you're recirculating air and possibly, as we know it, probably spreads a little bit as an aerosol and stays up in the air for quite a long time. There's the fact that people are close together. There's the fact that people are shouting. 
there's noisy equipment and you have to talk over it. So you're projecting your voice and you're spreading more saliva. And then there's the fact that a lot of people who work in these facilities are living together in dormitories, traveling in together. And so you're seeing this sort of complex mix of environmental and social factors. Um, but yeah, so that seems to be the sort of environment this likes to spread in. Whereas Actually, outdoors, it looks like everything's pretty much okay. Look, I'm not going to endorse you going around and meeting up in massive groups outdoors. But people have done that, and it hasn't produced a second spike. So on, on the subject of uh, being able to spread it around, uh, George, a listener to Times Radio, asks, how many individual virus cells do I need to inhale to become infected? It's a very specific question. I think maybe you're your best place to answer that, Tom. Yeah, uh, it's... <laughs> It, it's it's one of those things. I mean, the, the the literal answer is one. One virus particle needs to get into you, and it... oh, we seem to have uh, we seem to have lost Tom. We have a bit of a problem with the uh, with the tech this morning. Are you still there, Chris? I'm still here. Um, uh, as we've all, oh, no, oh, he's still going. He's still going in the background. Let's stick with Chris. We'll, 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 you only need to have uh, to get one in you inside you to potentially become infected. Uh, Chris Smythe. Uh, yesterday, Chris Whitty was saying that the virus was in, in retreat even before going into lockdown. There's also been a lot of debate about the full-on lockdown kicked in on March the 23rd, and was that too late? Uh, but if we were already going into uh, the virus was already in retreat before then, what was it that we were doing which was working so well? Um, uh, somebody uh, asking on um, uh, on the uh, text this morning, uh, beyond sort of just washing our hands. What, 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 why were we doing so well, apparently, at dealing with the virus? Well, well this is both uh, very significant for the government's attempt to sort of uh, defend itself against the inevitable inquiry and quite important for, for what's happening now, because... If you may remember, on the 16th of March, a week before full lockdown, Boris Johnson appeared at a press conference in Downing Street and told us all basically to stay at home, avoid non-essential travel, stop socialising, stop going to the pub, all those other th other things, which at the time seemed astonishingly dramatic. And uh, it, things moved so quickly then that only a week later that became came to be seen as inadequate. But what Chris Whitty was saying, that some of those voluntary measures of social distancing, combined with all of the hand washing and uh, other things that we were doing, might have actually taken the R, the reproductive rate of the virus, below one. So it, we actually got the uh, epidemic under control even without full lockdown. Now, he, he said that full lockdown was still needed to dry, really drive down the uh, case levels to, to a level when you can start to, to reopen. But the significance of this going forward, leaving aside the uh, finger pointing in white all over who did what when, is that it suggests this voluntary action, which we're now relying on again, really, might well be enough to stop the virus getting out of control. It's not going to drive cases down, but it might stop uh, in the current circumstances uh, another spike, which is possibly encouraging. So just keep washing your hands. Now, my, my sort of big bugbear question, which I, um, I you know, if, if we get, ever get Matt Hancock on the show, I'll, I shall ask him as well. But given that the government message was uh, stay at home, uh, protect the NHS, save lives. So people really did stay at home, actually far more than the government was necessarily expecting. The NHS was protected, as Tom was just talking us through there. The NHS hospitals barely became two-thirds full. Why have we ended up then with so many people losing their lives? Well, this is an absolutely key question. There is no single answer to this. I mean, one of the uh, most likely explanations is who ended up 
being infected. I mean, the, the, the goal at the start of this, you might remember, was to just protect the most vulnerable, um, particularly the elderly and those with care homes. And of course, in actual fact, what happens was almost the opposite in the sense that where the real outbreaks were ripping through in the height of lockdown uh, were care homes. Um, so actually, we, you know, the people who we most wanted to protect it were actually the people who were most likely to get it. And that you know, is likely to be a big part of the reason why deaths are so high. Um, I think there is a sort of slight hope in government that the uh, adjustment to death counting methodology that they made last week may suddenly um, cut the total number of deaths we've recorded. I don't think that is is very likely. Um, you know, it may be that we are more assiduous in our recording systems in the National Health Service than some other countries. But again, if you look at the excess death levels, we are quite high. Um, you know, exactly where we rank in uh, a, 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 the global league table is not going to be clear for for some time, but even you know, Chris Whitty is saying it's clear we've not done we've not done well, uh, and care homes is going to be a big part of that. I mean, you know, there has been some suspicion that people were sort of so desperate to protect the NHS that people didn't go into hospital, whether that was because the health service told them not to or because they were too scared. That could be part of it. If you look at what's happening now, while deaths in hospitals and care homes are well below average of the time of year now, uh, deaths at home are running, I think, about 700 a week more than usual. So there are people who need help who are not going to hospital for, for whatever reason. And I think that is likely to be a part of it too. It's all right though, Tom, because we're going to have a vaccine by Christmas and we'll all be back to normal eating our Christmas turkey and we'll never have to worry about coronavirus ever again. Is that right? I think I've read that right in the papers this week, haven't I? Um, yes. I mean, some so scientists went slightly ashen about the um, the all over by Christmas thing. Um, we may have a vaccine by uh, Christmas. I think it's very, we've had a very exciting week for vaccines. We've seen that lots of them do what they should be doing at this stage. I think... It, really quite important to emphasise, as dampening and annoying as it is, that most vaccines fail and that the stage coming at, up is the stage where we discover whether they actually work, whether they actually protect people from getting infected, which is all this is about, or maybe they may only have a partial effect. But even if we get them, we're probably not going to be uh, vaccinating the entire population. I mean, you only have to run through the numbers. To vaccinate everyone would require, if you did 100,000 vaccines a day, it would take you two years to get through the population. We're going to start with the most vulnerable and elderly. Things are still not going to be back to normal, even if we have this magical vaccine. Um, but realistically, uh, we're looking at, everyone is preparing for the idea that we're going into another winter when we're still going to be doing this, and my God, it's going to be boring. <laughs> Just finding that... Queuing outside shops, but in the rain, we're going to be not meeting people in parks. We're quite probably going to have a series of local outbreaks, and it's going to be depressing, and we're going to be sick. <laughs> what a cheerful way. Right, let's not end on that, on that downbeat note. It, were the were government to bring back the daily press conferences, just finally, what would you ask your, your uh, alter egos? What's the big question that you really want an answer to in public, first of all? Uh, let's start with you first of all, Chris. Well, there's, there, there's so many questions that you, you could ask. I mean, what, one that jumps out of the last conversation is Boris Johnson has, you know, he said last week that he wants to be back to normal by Christmas, which... 
on the face of it seems a little bit odd when we, we've just been talking about Christmas is exactly when uh, things start to get cold. It starts to spread more flu season hits. You know, why uh, are we targeting Christmas? Uh, and uh, how much of that is an economic consideration? Because that's such a crucial time of year for, you know, shops and shops and restaurants. Uh, and you know, what's, when we come to that crunch, how is he going to handle that balance between the desire to get everything open uh, for economic reasons and that really being the time of year when we are probably most likely to start to see another spike? Tom, we'll put your question in a sentence. Tom, have you got, are you still there? No, we've lost it all together. Not to worry, but that was... Uh, let's uh, maybe wind that up there. That was uh, Tom Whipple, our science editor, Chris Smythe, uh, Whitehall editor, but very much our Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty uh, talking, I mean, really uh, talking us through... I want to find out what... We'll just leave Tom talking away in the background there. Apologies uh, for the technological issues uh, during that, but hopefully it filled in the uh, some of the gaps on the science and the numbers. And like I said, if you want to look at the charts, you can go to my uh, Twitter account, twitter.com forward slash Matt Chorley, uh, and you can look at all the charts we were talking about there with Tom Calver as we did next slide please that's all we've got time for on this episode to listen to the whole times radio show just go to the times radio app and click listen again to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast subscribe on apple acast spotify or wherever you listen and to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast go to the times.co.uk forward slash times radio to subscribe but for now for me matt Cholly, it's goodbye planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.